Before I jump into this passage, let me kind of orient to chapter 2. So uh, all semester we're looking at the Old Testament books of Judges and Ruth. We're going to do Judges until spring break and Ruth after spring break. Um, And the reason that we're doing that is we don't try to do all old things here, but we want to see that um, these Old Testament books, though they are a different culture and time and place in the world, that there are lots of things that are true about the people here that are also true of us. But not just true about the people, the God that we read about who is at work in this book and who will be at work in the book of Ruth is the same God that is alive and ruling and reigning over the world today. And certainly we've got to make sense of some difficult things uh, in this passage that are different from our day and age, Um, but it is the same God. Um, The God of the Old Testament is not this crazy God of wrath who's doing all these things, just kind of mishmash, and then Jesus comes and he's like the nice God. It's the same God. Okay? And that may be um, a legitimate question that you have, and if if you ever want to talk about that and kind of work through that stuff, um, I'm happy to sit down with you. Emily and Joey are happy to sit down with you as well, um, because we realize it's not automatic that we understand that. But we're going to give it our best here every Wednesday night and look at this. Um, so chapter 1 of Joshua opens the very first verse. If, we, if you were to look at it printed out right there in your Bible, it would say this, And Joshua died. Now, that's important, and I'm, I'm going to say it again tonight. That's important because uh, Joshua was the leader of God's people Israel who followed Moses. Moses brought the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, right? The, ten, the plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses led them out of Egypt. But God did not let Moses bring his people into the land that he promised them. Instead, God said, Joshua will do that. And so Joshua then began bringing God's people into uh, roughly the land of Canaan. It was the other side of the Jordan. So Joshua led them across the Jordan River, and they started their conquest in this land. Okay, And God told Israel, he said, when you go into that land, you are to wipe the people out. And you are to dispossess them from their land, and you're to destroy them. Listen to last week if you want to hear a little more about that. Um, It's online. The podcast is out there on iTunes. Um, But the reason we can't just sit here and recap it all is because it would take forever. But here's what you need to know. That the God who asks his people to drive out these people who are in the land, he is not doing that because he is evil. He is doing that. For, for many different reasons, two of which we're going to touch on tonight. But he's doing that because he loves his people. And he is sending them into a land so that they can flourish and be the people who he created them to be. And we're going to see tonight if it works. So this is Luke, uh, not Luke at all. This is Judges chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 1. And uh, it's in your bulletin right there up on the screen behind us too. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? 
So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lift up their, lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the, that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And I'm going to skip down to verse 7. Sorry, let me pause here and tell you what's happening. Verses 1 through 10 is... Uh, the writer goes back and says, I'm going to give you one more snapshot before Joshua dies. Okay, so we're about to read about Joshua dying again. He's not dying twice. He's kind of going back in and filling out a few more details, and then Joshua's going to die again, and he's going to go on. Sorry, I meant to say that earlier. So verse 7. Um, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. Skip down to verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and served them uh, from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the land of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from that way which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies in all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers, and they have not obeyed my voice. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Down to chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave, over, uh, they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is God's word. It is a tough word. As I was um, thinking about this passage and studying for it and praying about it, um, I started thinking and wondering, is there anything in this world that we really long to do halfway? Is there anything that we go about the work of it and say, you know, I really want to give that a half-hearted effort? And I actually thought of a few things. Uh, the first thing is if you run a half marathon, that's not bad. 
right? I mean, it's decent. Uh, 13 miles, I guess maybe uh, any old chop could do that. But you could be proud of yourself if you only ran half of a marathon. Uh, if, you, if you made a half-court shot in basketball, decent, right? I mean, you could go the other way and really master that one. Um, but if you make a half-quarter, if you really, if you get good at them and make them again and again, that would be maybe noteworthy. So half-court basketball shot's pretty good. Um, what about if you get on the half-pipe you know, on a snowboard or on skis? You see people doing flips and stuff. If you can do that, you're maybe pretty cool. Uh, if you drink a half-calf latte, maybe that means you're trying to wean off an addiction so we can be proud of you. If you smoke half a cigarette, great, you didn't smoke the whole cigarette. Like, we could go on and on, like not doing bad things, doing half bad things. Um, but generally, we're not setting out in life to do things halfway. We don't want to be half-hearted about them. A half-hearted effort on a paper or a test gets you an F. A half-hearted performance in a job setting will get you fired. A half-hearted effort in a relationship will give you singleness. Um, A half-hearted day uh, with friends and not really wanting to be around them probably gets you a lot of loneliness. You really don't want to be someone who does things halfway, who goes about this world with a half-heart. And in this passage tonight, we see what half-heartedness looks like. We see a people who go to the Lord and who, who really go, go to Him halfway. But that's not the only thing we see. We see a wholehearted God in this passage too. And there's going to be a wonderful and, and pregnant tension that starts developing in this passage, and it's going to lead us to one really big question at the end. And so let's jump in and see what that tension is going to be. First right here, the half-hearted people. What are the characteristics of the half-hearted people we see in this passage? The first thing I want us to see is that half-hearted people in this passage are half-faithful. Where do I get that? Well, I get it from chapter 1. Okay, I wasn't going to read all of chapter 1 because chapter 2 is long enough. Um, but this is kind of the theme of chapter 1. It jumps in right at the beginning, I said, uh, and, and I said that Joshua dies. And what it does is it gives like the 10,000-foot view, and it says, and here's what, happened, here's what happened after Joshua died. They did not drive out the people in this land that God told them to drive out. They were half faithful. It said things like, you know, they went into the land, but they didn't drive out all the Canaanites. They lived among them. And they went into the land, they did, and they didn't destroy them. They took some of them as, as forced labor or as slaves. And that's just not what God said to do. But we might say they, they kind of did it, right? They halfway did it. They went into the land. They were half faithful about their work. And yet... God had asked them to do it the whole way. As I mentioned in the introduction, he had asked them to go in and destroy them and to utterly uh, break down their their altars and and drive out their gods and all the stuff they worshipped. They were, in essence, to go in and, and clean out this land. How could a loving God ask his people to do that? Here's how. God is a holy God. He is holy. He is God. He gets to say what offends him and what doesn't. And in the way the Bible lays this story out, 
God said that all of mankind are called to bring all of our lives, all of our hearts to him all the way. I said last week, we don't just bring good actions to God. He wants our motivations. He wants the reasons we do the things we do to be for his glory and not just for selfish reasons. And we may think, man, God's really, he's really strict about that. Like he's, he's really stringent. I prefer to think of God as just, uh, just being love. That's fine. I, I actually might prefer that too. But when we start talking about God in that way, he's just not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible takes sin very seriously. And so he told originally Adam and Eve and every single person since then, you have to follow me with your whole heart. And truthfully, the people living in this land, they were not doing that. They were not following God with their whole heart. In fact, they weren't following him at all. They were, we could have read from Deuteronomy 18, and I almost did, but it was just going to make it too long. It says this, uh, when God is telling them to go in and drive out this nation and the people that are there, it says things like this. When you go into that land, drive them out completely. Drive them out because they are giving their children as sacrifices to their so-called gods. They're sacrificing their kids because they're hoping that God will give them more kids. It's a fertility thing, and, and they thought that was the way they do it. So they're taking their babies and throwing them into the fire. And God's saying, it's not supposed to be that way. That's evil. You're supposed to drive that out. And he also says things like, uh, and then they go and they try to, to, to bring up dead, dead spirits, and, and they try to talk to them and ask these dead spirits to come and influence and interact in the world. And God's saying, it's not supposed to be that way. You've got to drive that out. That's evil. And God can actually rightly say what is evil and what's not. That, that's part of what it means to be God, is that he stands outside of the world in perfection and rightly judges. And we're going to talk about that here at the end. But it's not just that God is using his people as an instrument of judgment to drive out this evil. It's, it's not just that. And I don't even know if it's primarily that. Another big reason why God is doing this is because he knows that his people are half-hearted. And he knows that when they go into this land, and if they don't drive out all these people there with all of their crazy religious practices and stuff, he knows that they're going to give in. He knows if, if they accommodate and if they leave that house standing right there and they're just like, hey, we're just going to move in. Is that okay? Yeah, like if they just move in and leave the neighbor's Soon enough, God's people are going to be worshiping their gods. And friends, that is exactly what we see. They didn't drive them out. They were half faithful in that pursuit. And what it produced in them was half faithful hearts. And that's being generous. <laughs> they, they basically abandoned God. And, you know, we might look at them and say, man, y'all are stupid. Y'all are stupid. Why would you do that? And I'm just going to submit, and I'm going to tell you that we're really not that different. We're not. We, many of us, like to think that we are really super faithful, um, that we've given our whole hearts and lives to God. And yet, if someone were to look at the way you spend your money... If someone were to be able to peer into your, to your heart and your mind and to see the things that you worry about and how you functionally try to control everything about your life, if someone were to have access to every one of your past weekends, 
That though, though you say you love God and that you worship him with your whole heart, functionally you don't. And I don't. We're all half-hearted. Now, some of us may be more or less troubled by that. We may see our half-heartedness and we may hate it. We may see how we can't stop giving in to that social pressure and hate it. Or we might not. We might become comfortable with it. And that's actually what we see here with Israel is they got comfortable with it. This half-faithfulness in doing what God said led to a half-faithfulness in their response to God. And before you know it, verse 17 happens. Look down at that with me. He's saying anytime we bring our half-faithfulness to Him, we're whoring ourselves out to other gods. Now, this is not the G-rated version of the Bible. Here is what this is saying. Let me, let's just be very clear about it. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. That is to say that giving of our hearts, any part of our hearts, to something other than God, be it money, be it power, be it relationships, be it success, be it ambition, be it career, be it family, what a good things even, to give our hearts and our allegiance to anything else and ask it to, to save us and to deliver us and to give us deep joy and lasting peace is the spiritual equivalent of, of opening your legs and letting something else come into you. That's what that means. The Bible is saying it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's serious. God says that that's why the first two commandments say this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image of anything and worship it. I am the Lord. I am God alone. And to worship and, and kind of give yourself to anything else is to whore after another God. Why would God say that? Why would he be so firm in that language and be so sexually graphic? Here, here's why. God desires to love you like a faithful spouse. He desires to love you like a faithful spouse. The marriage picture is one of the controlling metaphors in all of the Bible for how God loves his people. It's, it's, this, it's supposed to be this intimacy, this place where you can be known and where you can, uh, over time, hopefully be naked and unashamed again like it was in the very beginning with God. And so God says, I want to love you that way. I do love you that way. I'm for you. He desires to lavish you with his goodness and to fill you with his presence. He doesn't want you to fill yourself with anything else. He wants to fill you with himself, with his Holy Spirit. And he created you to find your deepest significance and meaning in him. And so, yes, like a jealous spouse, you've cheated on him and he's angry about that. And he loves you far too much just to let you keep doing it. And so we see in this passage that God is angry at, at his people. They hoard themselves out. They were half-faithful. And we want, our, we want God to kind of tolerate our half-faithfulness. We want to be able to have a God-plus religion. We want to worship Jesus and we want to have freedom to do whatever we want on the weekends. We want to say that we worship God, but we also want to live the way we want to live. 
We want to worship God and we want to be able to pick our friends based on who makes us feel the best. And God says, look, I'm just not going to do that. God's not going to settle with a God plus anything version of spirituality from you. He's a jealous spouse who loves you too much to say he's okay with that. Second thing about a half-hearted people is not only the half-faithful, but really, and this flows out of that, that they're, they're half-forgetful, or really, they're all the way forgetful. They, they, they've given themselves to other gods, and they've whored themselves out. And what happens is, verse 7, there's a trickle-down. It says, and the people serve the Lord. So this is good. They serve the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. These are people who had seen God bring them into the promised land and and knock out Jericho, which was this huge fortified city. How did they do it? They did it with their cannons and with their tanks. No, they marched around Jericho and they screamed. And the walls came down and the people were pillaged. That's the great work of the Lord. These people had seen it and they knew that God was amazing. And yet they forgot. Verse 13, sorry, verse 11, 10, 11. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. Now, I don't know who forgot, honestly. I don't know if the parents, if Joshua and his buddies and their, and their wives and, and the church, I don't know if they forgot to teach the kids like they were supposed to and they were commanded to in Deuteronomy 6. God said, teach them all day long, teach them all about me, put it before their eyes and around them, teach them about me that they won't forget. So they won't forget. So I don't know if the parents didn't do that or if the kids weren't paying attention in Saturday school because they're good Jews and they worship on Saturday. Um, I don't know which one it was. Was it the parents' fault? Was it the kids' fault? Probably yes. But the, purpose, the point of it is they forgot. They forgot the Lord. They abandoned Him. They let the other gods in and they let the true God out. They forgot how much He had done for them. They had spiritual amnesia. They became a little bit too comfortable with the people next door. And friends... Um, Look at the very end of that passage. It's not just that they live next to them. They didn't just become comfortable with them next door. They become comfortable with them in bed with them. They gave their sons to their daughters, and they gave their daughters to their sons. They started marrying with these very people who God said, you need to drive them out. This is going to be bad for you if they stay. So they weren't just neighbors now. They were family. You know, it's hard to be mad at family. It's really hard to kill your family members. It is, and, and that's what happened. They couldn't do it. They didn't want to kill them any more than you you or I would want to kill anybody. They forgot. And we forget too, don't we? We forget what God has done for us. Many of you are Christians, I'm, I'm sure, I'm certain of it. And yet, certainly from time to time, you are convinced that God has left you. You're convinced that The thing you've done is the last straw, and he's done. He just, you promised him 25 times that you wouldn't go there again, and you did. That that porn was going to be the last thing, and you just keep doing it. 
You promised him again last Saturday morning after you drank so much Friday night. You promised him you would not do it again. And you did it Saturday night because the right people asked you and you wanted to impress them. You promised God this would be the semester that you don't worry about your grades. And two weeks in, how are you doing? We forget what God's done for us. We forget that he's faithful and that he's trustworthy and that his way is the way to peace and joy and flourishing. And many of you are in that place, and I'm in that place, and I forget. But some of you aren't in that place, and, and maybe you don't know God, and, and you're here and you're trying to learn and trying to figure this out. But maybe you've seen Christians or people who profess to be Christians around you, and you're looking at their life, and their life doesn't look that much different than your life. And you're wondering, well, what's wrong with this picture? Because this person says they're a Christian and they say they follow God, but their life looks this way. And so you really don't know how to make sense of that. And what I want so badly to do is to tell you, well, you can come to RUF and you can see what, what really good Christians are like. Just have lunch with me and we'll get that all figured out. But I can't do that. I can't do that at all. And and you won't figure that out here because everyone in this room is half-hearted. We're half-faithful. We're forgetful. And from time to time, and sometimes a lot of the time, we forget about who God is. We forget about what God's done. And we aren't quite as committed to him as we would want to think we are. And so we, we hope that when, when we are running away that we are sorry about that and that we're repentant and coming back to God. But we struggle with it still. We forget so how do they respond to their forgetfulness? Well, they're, they're kind of half feeling bad about it. They're halfway sorry. Look in verse 4. Um, and this is still when Joshua was alive, right? So they did something bad and the people wept. They wept. They were kind of sorry for what they did. And, and in Scripture, when people wept and then go on to offer sacrifices, that might actually mean that they were serious, that they were truly repentant and they were cut to the heart and they said, Ugh, I don't want to do this anymore. And so they would go and offer a sacrifice, maybe telling God, God, take this as a substitute for my sin. Maybe, maybe they were doing that, and that might be what's going on. But that repentance gets a lot softer and a lot weaker. Go down to verse 15, and I'll skip down to 18. Verse 15 says, And the hand of the Lord was against them as he had warned and as he had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And down in 18, they were groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Um, this is what I'm going to call hangover repentance. That's my phrase. Uh, you can tweet it if you want. I realize it's really catchy. Uh, hangover repentance is this. It's when you've done something that that you shouldn't have done and you feel really bad about it. So whether it's an actual hangover the next morning and you like, I'm never going to drink again. I feel so terrible. God, I'm never going to do that. And you know, you will you, as much as you don't want to, you know, you will. Or when it's, uh, you've given yourself to a guy again and you've promised you won't freak out over whether he texts you back in the next 20 minutes or not. And you, I'm, I'm not going to do that again this time. And you do it. And you feel bad about it. And you tell God you're not going to do it again, but you do. See, it's not so much you're sorry about the thing you did. You're sorry about the way it's made you feel. Look right there again closely, verse 15. And they were in terrible distress. Why were they in terrible distress? Because they were being dominated. 
They were sorry about the consequences of their sin, not about the sin itself. They weren't sorry that they left God. They were sorry that leaving God came with consequences. Verse verse 18, and they were groaning. Why? Because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. They hated the consequences of sin. And maybe you do too. Maybe it's not so much you, you feel and you hate that you've offended God and what He said, but maybe it's that, that you just hate the way it's, it's made your life inconvenient. Is it? I, I don't know that. I, I don't want to throw that on you if that's not true. But a lot of times that is true, is that we just hate the way sin makes us feel and what it brings about in our life. We hate the consequences of it. So there are half-hearted people, and so are we. But that's not the best part of this passage. In fact, that's pretty terrible. The best part of this passage is there's a wholehearted God who shows up in here. He's here in this passage in verse 1 and 2 and all throughout it. We're going to read right there. God starts and He opens up by saying, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said to you, I will never break my covenant with you. So what do we learn about this wholehearted God? Two things. The first thing is that He is wholly gracious. He is wholly gracious. That verse 1 right there, He's recounting His promise to His people. He's saying, look, here's what I did. I brought you out of Egypt. And it's not because they were good. They weren't. He's saying, I brought you out of Egypt because you're my people and I love you like a faithful spouse loves their spouse. And I was committed to you and so I brought you out and I delivered you. He's saying, that's who I am. That's what I did for you. And I swore to give you this land. God said, I'm going to give it to you. I have to give it to you. I swore by myself. You know, there was nothing higher by which he could swear. When we go to the courthouse, we put our hand on the Bible because still symbolically, even in a post-Christian culture, there's there's this idea that that's something higher than me. That if I violate that, that's bad. God swore to himself and said, I'm going to give you this land. And he did, but he goes on to that, and he goes on to say, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never, ever, ever stop loving you. I can't. I've got this ring on my finger. You're my, I can't stop loving you, is what he's saying. Realize what he's saying. He's looking at people who are whoring themselves out. They are spreading their legs for every other God. And he is saying, I love you still in the midst of that. I can't stop loving you. Do you get that about God? That the thing that you're just convinced is the thing that has made him never be able to love you or that's made him stop loving you? He can't stop. He has made a covenant with you. He says, I'm for you. I'm with you. He is utterly, wholly gracious. And even after they hoard out for all these other gods, he keeps being gracious. In verse 17, it says that he sent, verse 16, uh, he sent, uh, raise up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Again and again, the scenario is playing out. They get worse and worse, and God keeps sending judges to save them. And the judges do well for a little while, and the people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're really sorry about it. We'll follow you. And the next thing it says, the judge died, and the people went right back and were worse than they ever were in the beginning. But God can't stop loving them. He promised them he wouldn't. He's wholly gracious. But he's not just that. He's also wholly just. Verse 2, 
Right after he said, I can't stop loving you, I swore to give you this land, he looked at them and said, and you shall make no covenants with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars and drive them out. And you have not obeyed my voice. I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to love you. And you can't go on doing that. So here's, here's a, quite a, a, a scenario that God has put himself in. He said, I can't stop loving you. I'm gracious. But he's also said, I hate your sin and I can't tolerate your disobedience and you're, and you're whoring yourself out. I, I can't do that. So God has created this tension with his very own people. What is he going to do? Tim Keller summarizes it this way. You get to the end of verse 2 and he essentially is saying this. Why did you put me in this position? Why have you done this? You have put me in an impossible situation. I've sworn to bless you as my people, and I've sworn not to bless you as a disobedient people. How am I to solve this dilemma? Because on the one hand, God is holy and just, and He cannot tolerate, live with, or bless evil. And on the other hand, God is loving and faithful, and He cannot tolerate the loss of His people who He's committed Himself to. So God is gracious and He's just. What to do with this tension? Well, I'm going to tell you the tension actually doesn't get solved in the book of Judges. It doesn't. It carries throughout the whole book. So what does God do about his desire to be just and that part of his character, but also his graciousness and his love? The place where God finally answers that question and, and dispels that tension is at the cross of Jesus. Think about this for just a second. At the cross, God shows his absolute justice. He shows absolutely what sin deserves, death. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin deserves the separation from God. And Jesus got that. So God pours out his justice on Jesus. He has to punish evil and he does. And Jesus is destroyed because of it. But at the cross also... God is gracious because the sin that he's destroying at the cross is not Jesus' sin. It's your sin. It's the people of this time that we read about in the Bible. It's their sin. It's my sin. It's the sin of God's enemies, of the very people who haven't obeyed him. At the cross, Jesus says, I will take your sin And I will graciously, which means you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, I will kindly give you my righteousness. So God is both the just and the gracious justifier. That's what Paul says in Romans. That at the cross, he is absolutely faithful to his promise to punish sin and he is absolutely faithful to his promise to never abandon his people and to always love them let me give this illustration and i'll wrap up imagine that you go to the courthouse and you're guilty and you stand before the judge and he says look it's not even close i mean it's not even an argument you're clearly guilty uh justice must be served and i'm giving you the death penalty And the judge says, uh, and as you're about to be hauled off, he says, wait, 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 wait. I see uh, see that someone has come in and offered to take your place, to die in your place in the death chamber. 
And you look around and you're, and you're trying to figure out, you don't see anybody. And you look back up and the judge in that moment is taking his way away from the stand and he's stepping down and he's taking off his robe. And he comes next to you and says, I'm going to go for you. Friends, at the cross, God the Father takes off his righteousness, and God the Son, rather, takes off his righteousness, and he offers it to you. And he steps into the line of God's justice so that you will never have to. And so these people here, they didn't need another earthly judge who would deliver them for a few years or a few decades. And you and I don't need just another good leader who can tell us how to live. We need a God who will come and save us. We need a God who will come and not just deal with our lives, but to deal with our souls. And in Jesus, we have that. And this is what the Christian, this is what Christianity calls the good news. This is the gospel. This is offered to you. If it's yours, then worship him. If you don't know that God yet, come to him. Give your heart to him. He loves you. He has committed himself to you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together.